Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Heart Success Podcast. This episode is part of our larger series dealing with diabetes management and cardiovascular disease. We have an endocrinologist with us today, Dr. Ritika Puri. Dr. Puri just completed her, her fellowship in endocrinology at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Prior to that, Dr. Puri completed her residency in internal medicine at Albert Einstein Medical Center in Philadelphia. She completed her medical school at Lady Harding Medical College in Delhi, India. Dr. Puri's research interests primarily around improvement in patient outcomes with diabetes and quality improvement initiative projects around management of patients with diabetes or metabolic syndrome. We decided to go over this topic of diabetes and cardiovascular disease with two endocrinologists. And as part of that, we will try to focus on separate aspects of the disease with each of them. Of course, there will be some overlap, especially when we talk about some of the newer drugs, some of the clinical pearls when it comes to diabetes management and individual expertise and recommendations. Welcome, Ritika. Super excited to have you on. Thank you for having me on your podcast, Mahek. Ritika, you just completed your fellowship and moved from St. Louis. How has the transition been? We've recently moved to Omaha. I have been spending my time exploring this new city. There are some wonderful restaurants here. Um, also, I've taken up uh, my long-forgotten hobby of uh, painting. So, yeah, I've been enjoying my time. Ritika, you know, going to our topic today, it's a fairly complicated uh, conversation around the relationship between diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Recently, of course, there has been a significant peak in the interest with the, uh, with the new trials that have come out in the last few years and the new classes of drugs that have really introduced not only cardiovascular safety, but significant improvements in major adverse cardiovascular events. So we thought it would be really good to get an endocrinologist who actually manages diabetes a lot more than I do, and I think most of the other cardiovascular colleagues would would agree with me that a lot of the diabetes management is done by physicians in the community, commonly with the help of endocrinologists. Uh, so could you tell us why it's important to talk about diabetes and uh, cardiovascular disease, maybe how the field has been changing in the last few years? We know how strong association is between diabetes and cardiovascular disease. It's profound. It's the primary cause of death in patients with type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Diabetics have two to four-fold increase in risk for coronary artery disease, peripheral artery disease, and uh, CVA. Uh, diabetes is not only considered a major independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but is also a coronary artery disease equivalent. It is very important to remember that as we incorporate cardiovascular efficacy and safety to management of diabetes, we're not moving away from glycemic control. Numbers still stay important. 
Over the last decade, techniques for management of both type 1 and type 2 diabetics have evolved rapidly. With the use of continuous glucose monitors, insulin pumps, we can achieve a tighter yet safer glycemic control for our type 1 patients and essentially enable them to live a very normal life. For type 2 diabetics, we have many more options now with the three new classes of drugs, SGLT2 inhibitors, GLP-1 agonists, and DPP-4 inhibitors, and also have a better sense of their cardiovascular safety and benefits, which was lacking for some of the older diabetic drugs. No, absolutely. That is a great point. There have been significant advances in the field of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. I'm glad you mentioned that glycemic control is not just a historical term. It still remains very relevant in our conversation on diabetes care today. Is the conversation on microvascular and macrovascular disease and the demarcation between the two still relevant in diabetes care? Let me talk about some of the older trials first, which might help understand this better. DCCT, or Diabetes Control and Complication Trial in 1993, showed that intensive glycemic control amongst patients with type 1 diabetes can delay and slow the progression of existing microvascular complications, including retinopathy, nephropathy, and neuropathy. However, this came at a much higher rate of hypoglycemia. This trial was unable to demonstrate a reduction in cardiovascular events, possibly because the study population was young and the follow-up period was just over six years. Then came the follow-up study, or EDIC, in 2005. It looked at the same population over a mean period of 11 years and showed a continued improvement in microvascular complications and a 42% risk reduction in all cardiovascular events and 57% reduction in risk of non-fetal MI, stroke, or death from cardiovascular disease. However, data for type 2 diabetics is less robust for decrease in cardiovascular complications with improved glycemic control as compared to type 1 diabetics. UK PDS or UK Prospective Diabetes Study, Advanced Accord Veteran Affair Diabetes Trial, they initially failed to show reduction in cardiovascular disease mortality amongst patients with type 2 diabetes. Accord actually showed increased mortality in the group with intensive glycemic control. Eventually, long-term follow-up of UK PDS and VADD in type 2 diabetics suggested eventual cardiovascular benefit of tighter glycemic control. This was viewed as a legacy effect or metabolic memory. But these cardiovascular effects were not as apparent as the effects on microvascular complications, and it's unclear why there is this discrepancy. When we talk about the pathophysiology of microvascular and macrovascular disease, there does seem to be an interconnect, whether it be generation of reactive oxygen species, accumulation of advanced glycation end products, low-grade inflammation. This has been implicated in the pathogenesis of both micro and macrovascular disease. Also, patients with microvascular complications of diabetes do appear to be at a higher risk of accelerated um, atherosclerosis. 
Yet, there is a difference in the structure, regulation, manifestations of the two vascular systems. Despite um, all the studies, we don't quite understand the effect of diabetes on vascular disease and the reason behind this differential response in uh, with the different therapeutic interventions. If I may summarize that, it seems that glycemic control is very important in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. However, the benefits of glycemic control are more apparent in type 1 disease, less apparent in type 2 disease. Similarly, in micro and macrovascular disease, while both seem interconnected, the benefits of glycemic control seem to be more prominent when it comes to microvascular disease prevention. Does the duration of diabetes actually have any uh, importance? Does a longer duration, for example, maybe diminish the effect of starting therapies in these patients or vice versa? Is there a role really for early diagnosis, early treatment, early glycemic control in these patients? Certainly, Mehek. As I mentioned, in these trials, we saw something called as legacy effect or metabolic memory, as in the initial tighter control during the course of diabetes had a prolonged effect in terms of microvascular and macrovascular complications. It is also seen that in patients with prolonged type 2 diabetes, eventually uh, there is a decline in beta cell function and these patients tend to require insulin down the line. So this is something that is always taken into account when we are considering treatment in patients who have had prolonged uncontrolled diabetes, saying that it is very essential to have an early control of either type 1 or type 2 diabetes to prevent complications down the line. It's a great point, yeah. You know, one thing, without trying to get into too many details, you know, on, on the diagnosis of diabetes, because we learned that in medicine, in your practice, what are you usually using as tools for patients who suspect diagnosis of diabetes? What, what kind of tests do you perform in these patients? Um, by the time they come to us, most of them usually are already diagnosed with diabetes and often are very uncontrolled. However, in community for pr- uh, primary care physicians or any other physician who might be seeing patients who are at uh, high risk for diabetes, it is very essential to know who to screen and when to screen and how to screen. So American Diabetes Association recommends screening all asymptomatic adults starting at the age of 45. Testing should be considered for asymptomatic adults who are overweight or obese and have uh, one or more risk factors that predisposes them to diabetes. Uh, These risk factors are first-degree relative with diabetes, having a high-risk ethnicity, essentially non-Caucasian ethnicities such as African-American, Latino, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. A history of cardiovascular disease puts them at high risk for having diabetes, hypertension, or dyslipidemia. Women with polycystic ovary syndrome, physical inactivity, 
and some other conditions with insulin resistance, such as severe obesity or acanthosis nigricans. Patients with prediabetes or patients who have an A1C of 5.7 or more should be tested on a yearly basis. And women with a diagnosis of gestational diabetes should have a lifelong testing at least every three years interval. We often tend to forget this patient population as they are usually pretty young, but women with gestational diabetes are at a much higher risk for developing diabetes, and often they are no longer in touch with their OBGYN who had uh, diagnosed and worked them up during their pregnancy. If these results are normal, testing should be repeated at a minimum of three-year interval with consideration of more frequent testing depending on the initial results and risk status. Thank you, Ritika, for going over all those different categories of patients where you suspect diabetes and also going over how often to screen these patients. If you wouldn't mind, you could just give us a short refresher on how to diagnose diabetes using more than just one modality. I know most of us are commonly using A1C, fasting plasma, glucose in most patients to come up with this diagnosis, but but what are the official recommendations on testing and cutoffs for diagnosing this disease? The recommended tests for screening, it is very important to know how we diagnose. So the recommended tests for screening and diagnosis of diabetes are A1C, fasting plasma glucose, a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test, and random plasma glucose, an A1C of equal to more than 6.5% is diagnostic of diabetes, fasting plasma glucose equal to more than 126, or a two-hour plasma glucose value equal to or more than 200 during a 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test are diagnostic of diabetes. Random plasma glucose equal to more than 200 should only be used as a diagnostic criteria in patients with classic symptoms of hyperglycemia. ADA also emphasizes on the need for two abnormal test results from the same or two different test samples unless there is a clear clinical diagnosis based on overt signs and symptoms of hyperglycemia. Okay. So, you know, I commonly use the A1C in my practice. I feel like it's an easy test to do. What I actually didn't appreciate until I started looking into it more recently is that it's not very sensitive. So would you recommend that in patients that I actually suspect diabetes, if the A1C is within normal limits, I should probably refer to a primary care doctor or an endocrinologist for some of these other diagnostic testings? A1C is certainly an easy test to perform. It gives us an estimate of the mean blood glucose over previous 8 to 12 weeks. And we have data that there is reduction in complication with the decrease in A1C. But it does have several pitfalls. It does not tell you how widely those blood sugars are fluctuating. A1C is unreliable in patients with certain medical conditions that alter lifespan of erythrocytes, such as anemia, hemoglobinopathies, iron deficiency, um, vitamin B12 deficiency or folate deficiency in patients with CKD or on hemodialysis. Mm. 
Um, also, shear stress in a patient with stenotic aortic valve can cause intravascular hemolysis and falsely lower the A1C. And there is variability based on the race. African Americans, Hispanics, and Asians have a higher A1C concentration than white persons with similar glycemic control. Mm -hmm. uh, we are gradually incorporating different parameters to assess glycemic control, such as time and range and glycemic variability, which gives us information about the time spent in a certain range of blood glucose, extent of glycemic fluctuation, and frequency of hypoglycemia. These have shown to be independent predictors of coronary artery disease and other diabetes-related complications and help attain a tighter yet a safer glycemic control. Now saying that, we certainly also have data for other tests like 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test and it is uh, more sensitive, especially when diagnosing early diabetes. However, these are cumbersome tests. So, you know, A1C continues to have its own advantages. And as long as we understand the pitfalls, that helps. No, absolutely. That's great because I don't always appreciate uh, some of these other scenarios where I may be getting um, false negatives even. So, you know, let's go, let's go to the cardiovascular safety of these drugs because that's the reason we're here today. You know, we, we're trying to get around all these different drugs and some of them be, have been around for a while. I went through medical school learning about these metformin, sulfonylureas, the thiazol, the, can't even say it. I think it's the thiazolidinediones, insulin. And now we have the newer classes of medications. Today, when we have all these randomized control trials coming from the newer drugs, it always wants us to go back and look at things we've been doing for many years. So is there good data for cardiovascular safety in some of these older drugs that we just spoke about? That's a great question, Mehek. The problem is um, most of this data looking at cardiovascular outcomes comes from post hoc analysis. Um, these trials have used different endpoints, different study populations, study duration, different methodology. Due to the concerns of limited understanding of cardiovascular safety and increase in cardiovascular risk in this patient population, in 2008, FDA mandated performance of cardiovascular outcome trials for all new medications for treatment of type 2 diabetes. Since then, we've had a number of trials for DPP-4 inhibitors, GLP-1 agonists, and SGLT-2 inhibitors, which have provided us with a lot of uh, new information for patients with type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease or those at a high risk for cardiovascular disease. Let's talk about metformin first, as this is the first-line drug therapy for management of type 2 diabetes. It is. Um, it has good glycemic efficacy, good safety profile and tolerability. It is not associated with weight gain and may contribute to modest weight loss, actually. It does not cause hypoglycemia. It can be used in patients with mild to moderate renal insufficiency. However, it is not recommended for GFR less than 30. Compensated heart failure is no longer viewed as a contraindication for metformin use. 
metformin has a favorable uh, effect on the lipid profile that causes reduction in triglycerides modest reduction in LDL cholesterol, increase in, uh, in HDL, and a reduction in several clotting factors as well. In UK PDS uh, trial, the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, metformin was associated with a reduction in total mortality in obese patients and with uh, type 2 diabetes when compared to patients on sulfonylurea or insulin therapy. There was also a reduction in myocardial infarction and death of any cause after long-term follow-up uh, in uh, UKPDS. Then came the spread MCAT study, results of which were consistent with UKPDS and supported the use of metformin as first-line medication and treatment of type 2 diabetes. Coming on to sulfonylureas, uh, this class of drugs works by stimulating insulin release from the pancreas they have high glycemic efficacy, um, these lower A1C by anywhere uh, from 1 to 1.5%. These drugs have been in the market for the longest time and if affordability is an issue, this is certainly a, um, a cheap option to go to. However, sulfonylureas are associated with increased risk of hypoglycemia especially in patients with impaired renal function or old age. And also, uh, this class of drugs is associated with weight gain. In terms of cardiovascular safety, University Group Diabetes Study, or UGDS, showed that tolbutamide, which is one of the first-generation sulfonylureas, was associated with increased mortality from cardiovascular disease in diabetic patients. However, in general, Second-generation sulfonylurea, such as glipizide, glimepiride, are considered neutral with respect to overall cardiovascular effects, but when compared to metformin, they do appear to have a higher risk of cardiovascular events. Thiazolazine dions is a very interesting class of drugs, in my opinion, Mehek, um, and also I feel they are quite underused. Two drugs available in the United States are pioglitazone and rosaglitazone. Rosaglitazone is uh, generally not used due to potential for increase in cardiovascular risk, which was seen with some of the older trials. However, uh, later on, studies did not demonstrate this increase in cardiovascular risk, but it just did not come back in uh, uh, clinical use. Pioglitazone, on the other hand, um, in the proactive study, showed a reduction in composite endpoint of all-cause mortality, non-fetal MI, and stroke in patients with type 2 diabetes who were at high risk for macrovascular events. Um, again, in the IRIS trial, pioglitazone significantly reduced fatal and non-fatal MI and stroke in insulin-resistant patients with previous ischemic stroke or TIA. But it is not a great choice for patients with congestive heart failure, which remains a contraindication to this class. They cause fluid retention and may worsen or precipitate heart failure. These drugs also cause weight gain, and there is a concern for negative effect on bone and concern for bladder cancer. However, this remains controversial. Lastly, insulin. Insulin does not appear to increase or reduce cardiovascular events irrespective of its effect on A1C. 
it does contribute to weight gain and increase in risk of hypoglycemia. That was great, Radhikar. So metformin safe and actually probably efficacious from the cardiovascular standpoint. Sulfonylureas, really the newer sulfonylureas, cardioneutral, but when compared to metformin, they're actually a little worse. The TZDs, underutilized, contraindicated in heart failure. Some promising data for pioglitazone, but really not as common in practice. And insulin overall seems cardioneutral, uh, probably fairly potent, which is why we see a lot of it when there's uncontrolled diabetes. The other thing that I've realized is, you know, in the newer trials, there was a lot of patients who were on background therapies. Background therapies meant usually being on metformin or sulfonylurea or one of these older drugs. And there was concerns about the safety of these background therapies with the argument being that sulfonylureas were probably detrimental in the control group, which made them a negative control in some ways in some of these trials, which were positive. However, recently I was reading about this study that came out comparing glimepiride to linagliptin, which is a GLP-1 agonist called Carolina. found it quite interesting, and I know we spoke about it briefly before. Could you tell us about what this study involved and, and what it showed? I totally agree, Mehe. Carolina is a very interesting trial, and it helped clarify some of the controversy around cardiovascular safety of sulfonylureas. Carolina is a randomized, double-blinded, non-inferiority trial, which uh, did not show a difference in cardiovascular outcomes over a mean period of about six years between linagliptin and glimepiride in a total of about 6,000 patients with relatively early onset type 2 diabetes and elevated cardiovascular risk, suggesting cardiovascular safety of glimepiride in patients who are at high risk for cardiovascular outcomes. However, there was a higher risk of hypoglycemia in the group receiving glimepiride, which is an adverse effect which we try to avoid in patients who have cardiovascular disease. I see. One of the other questions I have is your practice in managing type 2 diabetes. You know, I just, I know you briefly mentioned the different drugs you go to. Typical the patient that you have with prior cardiovascular disease, you know, prior MI or or prior heart failure, who comes into your clinic, let's say with normal to to low-grade CKD, what is your practice in initiating medications? How quickly do you go to the newer classes of medications, you know, the DPP-4s, the GLP-1 agonists, the SGLT2 inhibitors, or do you stay on metformin first, monitor them? What is your practice? That's a great question, Mehek. Therapeutic inertia is a major problem um, in in the society, and um we often don't escalate the treatment as rapidly as it should be. Um, in my practice, I uh, certainly use metformin as the first-line treatment as long as there's no contraindication for its use. Um, depending on how high the A1C is above the glycemic target, one could consider initiating dual therapy. Addition of a second-line drug is essentially based on patient profile and the side effect profile of the drug. It is very important to individualize the treatment and have a patient-centered approach to guide the pharmacologic approach. In patients who have or are are at a high risk of uh, atherosclerotic disease, 
SGLT2 inhibitors in GLP1 agonists, which have demonstrated cardiovascular disease benefits, should be considered. In patients with heart failure or those who are at a high risk for heart failure, SGLT2 inhibitors are preferred. Early introduction of insulin should be considered in the group of patients who have weight loss or ongoing evidence of catabolism. And I would say that it is important to reevaluate and intensify treatment every three to six months if glycemic targets are not met. So a close follow-up with these patients is certainly important to intensify the treatment and also to look at the adverse effects and change the treatments if needed. I see. You know, that therapeutic inertia really brings me to this interesting uh, observation of my own that I don't always look at my patients' diabetic drugs as long as their A1C is well controlled. I don't don't always ask the primary care doctor because I know endocrinologists are usually really on top of this, but I don't necessarily ask the primary care doctors to actively change treatments if I feel they would have more cardiovascular safety and efficacy. Maybe I need to start doing that more. Um, if I was looking to start prescribing these medications, you know, let's say the SGLT2 inhibitors has been a diabetic drug, but is turning into a heart failure drug based on more recent data. One of the things that happens is we, we as cardiologists have just not been di- managing diabetes for many years. So when I start looking to initiate patients on an SGLT2 inhibitor, is there something I should be watching out for? Is there something that I should be checking before I put these patients on medications? And if uh, once I start them on this medication, what it, what should my typical approach be to managing it? Should I ask an endocrinologist to take over or should I continue to up titrate medications or keep monitoring these patients a certain way? So cardiovascular disease prevention has always been an integral part of endocrinology, whether it is lipidology, nutrition, obesity management, hypertension, or diabetes. And, you know, endocrinologists are always happy to take on new challenges. Um, I do want to mention that irrespective of a subspecialty, if a physician understands the risks and benefits of a drug, available alternatives, clinical situation where it should or can be used, um, and has the ability to deal with the adverse effect, they should be okay to prescribe it. Very important to choose the correct patient when prescribing any of these drugs. These drugs have proven to have several benefits but are not benign drugs. It is not rare to see complications in patients who are not chosen appropriately. One of the very rare side effects, which I always tell my patients about, is euglycemic diabetic ketoacidosis. It is a very rare, but a potentially life-threatening complication and easy to miss. There is often a delay in recognition due to absence of significant hypoglycemia. Type 1 diabetics and patients with latent autoimmune disease of the adult or LADA have higher likelihood of developing euglycemic decay and also type 2 diabetics in certain stressful conditions. ACE has recommended certain guidelines to avoid euglycemic decay in our type 2 diabetics. It is important to stop SGLT2 inhibitors 24 to 48 hours prior to scheduled surgeries and anticipated uh, metabolically stressful activities. 
patients taking SGLT2 inhibitors should avoid very low-carb meals and also excessive alcohol intake to avoid euglycemic DKA. One should avoid stopping insulin or decreasing the dose of insulin excessively when initiating a SGLT2 inhibitor. And for patients who undergo emergent surgeries for any cause or are at or undergo extreme stressful event, uh, the drug should be stopped immediately and appropriate uh, clinical care should be provided for these patients. Um, there is also a concern for increased risk of lower limb amputations. SGLT2 inhibitors should be avoided in patients with prior amputations, peripheral vascular disease, neuropathy, and ulcers, which uh, I'm sure you're seeing quite a few of those uh, patients in your uh, uh, patient population. There is also an increased risk uh, for uh, genital mycotic infections, UTIs, urosepsis, pyelonephritis in both men and women. There is a concern for association with corneal gangrene. So again, uh, you want to be cautious uh, in those old frail patients who are getting admitted in the hospital again and again with uh, urinary uh, sepsis or UTIs. No, that's, that's actually great to know because I wasn't aware of a lot of those things. And I'm glad I spoke to you before I started anybody on this drug. Do you have to back off of other blood pressure meds or they're on diuretics? Do you commonly have to back off of these medications in your patients? Because, you know, SGLT2 inhibitors commonly will lower your blood pressure a little bit, probably cause a little bit of diuresis. Uh, what, what is your practice being with respect to managing other drugs around starting someone on an SGLT2 inhibitor? There is a modest effect on blood pressure with SGLT2 inhibitors, about four to five milli, uh, millimeters of mercury for systolic and one to two for diastolic blood pressure. And as you said, it does cause osmotic diuresis, uh, can predispose to volume depletion, AKI, and hypotension. So one should be mindful uh, when prescribing with diuretics. Uh, and we may have to adjust the diuretic dose uh, if concomitantly used. Um, you also want to assess a patient's volume status in creatinine uh, before initiating the drug. It uh, might not be a problem to use it along uh, with the current dose of diuretics if the patient is already um, overloaded. However, in a somewhat dehydrated patients, you you would want to back off on other drugs. Interesting. In your practice, are, are you seeing a lot of differences in A1Cs or better glycemic control when you're doing SGLT2 inhibitors? Are you commonly having to add other drugs on top because they are maybe not as potent? Meg, SGLT2 inhibitors have a somewhat uh, modest effect on glycemic control, uh, a reduction uh, averaging around 0.5 to 0.7%. And a similar reduction is seen with the DPB-4s as well. GLP-1 agonists are certainly more potent than uh, both these classes of drugs with an average reduction of about 1 to 1.5%. So yes, depending on uh, how high somebody's A1C is above the glycemic target, we often have to start another medication along with it. One of the other things that practically becomes an issue is these are all new, which means a lot of them are expensive. Have they have 
these new drugs being added to the armamentarium, of course, is good for patients, good for us because we can do more for our patients. But have they added to your burden with pre-authorizations or have you actually had difficulty in getting to these drugs in a lot of the patients? These are expensive drugs. Both SGLT2 inhibitors and DPP4 inhibitors are around uh, maybe $400 a month or so. And GLP-1 agonists close to $800 to $1,000 a month. Coverage has improved over the years, but it still is far from being ideal. Amount of time spent on prior authorization is certainly ridiculous. Um, formulary change at the start of every year does not make things easy either. So you're saying that if I start using these drugs in my clinic, I would expect an immediate increase in in uh, the the burden for pre-authorizations because I do you have to go through pre-authorizations for most of these drugs. Uh, yes. Uh, often the insurances would cover at least one out of the class. It might not be the one you want to prescribe. Yeah. Um, but most of the insurances have started covering at least uh, at least one. Interesting. Considering a large proportion of patients with diabetes and heart failure are older, are on Medicare and some of the other government-supported insurance plans, the cost burden, even in my short experience on patients being on both SGLT2 inhibitors or GLP-1 agonists and Entresto, is significant in some of these older populations that are living on fixed incomes. Recently, it is an anecdotal case, but someone was paying $300 or $400 out of pocket per month for empagliflozin. I wanted to start this patient on Entresto, and turns out Entresto is another $200 a month. Couldn't afford both. I didn't want to reinvent the wheel since the diabetes was so well controlled. I stayed on an ACE inhibitor and uptitrated the ACE inhibitor. But clearly, this was a choice where I had to figure out with the patient the cost involved with these medications and the fact that we could really go on, we could not go on both. The fact that we could only pick one of the two since that was affordable and then use an alternative, alternative drug for the other class. I'll argue that in DAPA heart failure, I believe the use for Entresto was fairly low in that population. I think the number of patients on Entresto at baseline was roughly 10 or 11% if I recall. So that's the approach where we know that these SGLT2 inhibitors in heart failure patients clearly have an advantage compared to more conventional therapies. We don't truly really know if this benefit would persist among patients who are on ARNIs. I think for some of the future trials that will happen down the line, hopefully they'll have a larger proportion of patients taking an angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitor at baseline. What we would see is truly the effect of this new medication on top of the best guideline-directed medical therapy. Now, one of the advantages of using these drugs has been the weight loss that comes with SGLT2 inhibitors and maybe even more weight loss with GLP-1 agonists. Does, uh, I want to talk briefly about uh, weight loss and diabetes because I know in heart failure, we talk a lot about exercise, cardiac rehab. Uh, weight loss also certainly helps a lot when it comes to risk factor control being diabetes or high blood pressures or high cholesterols. 
how strong is the data for showing benefits of weight loss in diabetic patients? Does weight loss really help? Definitely, Mike. So GLT-2 inhibitors, uh, again, um, can cause about 2 to 3 kilograms of weight loss. Uh, this is what has been seen in the trials. DPB-4 inhibitors, however, are weight neutral. GLP-1 agonists are certainly better uh, out of all these drugs when it comes to weight reduction, especially liraglutide and semaglutide. There is definitely a strong association of obesity with numerous uh, comorbidities, uh, which includes diabetes and cardiovascular disease, heart failure. There is also strong evidence to suggest that diabetes management can delay progression of prediabetes to diabetes, and modest weight loss can improve glycemic control and reduce the need for glucose-lowering drugs. Look Ahead trial looked at role of intensive lifestyle modification in over 5,000 overweight and obese individuals with type 2 diabetes. Both the cohorts experienced weight loss. The average differential weight loss between the two cohorts was about uh, 2.5%. This study did not show a, a reduction in occurrence of cardiovascular events, however. But it did show significant improvement in sleep apnea, depression, urinary incontinence, quality of life, physical functioning, sexual functioning, and mobility. So definitely not an insignificant effect. Of course. Um, the intervention group required less medications for glucose lowering, blood pressure, and lipid management. Despite lack of significant reduction in cardiovascular events, the other outcomes were reassuring to continue supporting healthy lifestyle in this patient population. For management of obesity in patients with diabetes, the goal is a modest and sustained weight loss. Sustained is very important. Diet, physical activity, and behavior therapy to achieve and maintain over 5% of weight loss is what we recommend to our patients. Strategies to achieve about a 500 to 750 kilocalorie per day energy deficit, which is mostly achieved with approximately 1,200 to an 1,800 kilocalorie diet a day, is what we often recommend. Physical activity level for uh, to maintain weight loss of about 200 to 300 minutes per week is recommended. And certainly pharmacologic therapy and metabolic surgery are used in, conjunct in conjunction with lifestyle changes. We have a lot of data also to suggest that bariatric surgery reduces cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. It certainly so that was actually, you know, you brought that up. That was going to be my next question is do you use bariatric surgery as an option for diabetes control in your patients? And if yes, when do you make that? Uh, recommendation to your patients? We often use bariatric surgery because that is one of the best ways to reduce weight and maintain a sustained weight loss, definitely with dietary changes, physical activity, and often behavioral changes. It is a relatively safe way as well to lose weight. And the amount of benefit that you see in terms of diabetes, remission, um, OSA, cardiovascular disease, there is actually reduction in certain uh, cancer uh, cancers as well, 
it, it has immense benefit and we are definitely uh, referring our patients for bariatric surgery especially if they are obese and have other cardiovascular uh, morbidity oh, very true there is a significant uh, burden of obesity in the community i think you're in the midwest i'm in the northeast but clearly we we have a challenge with increasing obesity in the community and continued increase in cardiovascular risk that persists among these patients so thank you so much rithika that was that was a phenomenal discussion on all these different drugs and thank you for informing me and teaching me a lot about these drugs because i certainly didn't know uh, the the newer stuff and the up- one last question before i let you go okay. i've been asked on the keto diet by a lot of my patients is that something you would recommend in your patients with diabetes we don't have any long term data in terms of uh its effect on cardiovascular disease uh it certainly you know a low carb diet gives us amazing numbers when it comes to diabetes but there can be variable effects in patients lipid profile uh, with low carb high fat diet uh when we look at long term studies the weight loss at the end of one year is very similar irrespective of which diet you're on either it's a low fat diet or a low carb diet so in in short term you might see better weight loss with one out of the two but in long term uh, it essentially depends on what you can sustain okay thank you so much radhika any last words any any uh, last recommendations for our listeners Mike we've talked about a number of things today but in the end all I want to say is that it is very important to have a patient centric approach and keep drug specific effects cost patient preference and patient factors in mind when using these drugs diabetes impacts every aspect of the patient's life and it makes it very important for us to involve patients in their care educate them and equip them with the knowledge to help them take care of themselves with this i would like to thank you for having me on your podcast that brings us to the end of another episode that we had a great time creating thank you for listening we appreciate your comments your critiques we're constantly trying to make our content better to make it ready for practical clinical use if you do enjoy the episodes please don't forget to like subscribe and give us a high rating on be it iTunes or any of the other podcast providers because it does help other listeners find our podcast leave your suggestions for topics critiques things you think we can do better you can email us at heartsuccessteam@gmail.com find us on our facebook page at heartsuccessteam you can now ask alexa to play heart success podcast visit our website www.heartsuccess.info where we provide all the episodes and provide links to the different podcast providers hey and if you're using twitter you can always find me on twitter at @cardiobro mm-hmm.